Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to episode 15 of Signals to Danger. As I always do, I'll start by thanking all of you for downloading and listening. I appreciate all of it, so thank you very, very much. If you could take the time to like, share and review this podcast, it will keep growing. And I think that's been uh, evidenced by the fact that uh, it has kept growing. And I thank you all for, for sharing it out and about and on, on Twitter and Facebook and things like that. Over the last few weeks, I've also tried to look at the ways of expanding the content that I create. And if you get yourself over to the YouTube channel, you'll see a few videos I've put together including one which is a brief review of an REIB report that was released last week into the tragic death of a man stuck by a train at Eden Park Station in London last year. This podcast is made possible by those who support me, both through sharing and growing, as I've already said, and financially supporting the creation of the podcast as well. For a while now, we've been on Patreon, and I've said before, if you sign up, you get access to some extra content, a platform to chat to me on, and some sneak previews as to what episode is next. On this note, I just want to say thank you to Kaya, Jonathan and Louise, who have all signed up since the last episode. If you would rather support the podcast but as a one-off, that is now possible. Details of both options are available at signalstodanger.com forward slash support. And speaking of signalstodanger.com, the brand new website is now up and running. It has episode notes, news, updates almost a little bit of a blog um, as I see things that are worth sharing and there's a few other bits and bobs on there so please feel free to go and have a look see. I did mention last time the Steam and Steel podcast now that is growing at leaps and bounds and it offers a great opportunity to hear from those with a passion for railway heritage. Plus I recorded an interview with Matt a few days back and that'll be airing in a few weeks so if you don't get enough of me here I think you know what to do. With all of that out of the way, it's definitely time to get into episode 15. Weekends, especially in the summer holidays, are a time for fun. Families on their way for a day out, others headed to the shops or visiting friends. Trains are just as crowded as on a weekday. Briefcases replaced with shopping bags and lunchboxes, making way for cool bags and buckets and spades. 
This is what's going through the mind of rescuers as they looked upon the sight of four carriages of a passenger train scattered over the tracks of a branch line on a Saturday morning in East Yorkshire. The year is 1986, and this time we're in Lockington. Investigators at the scene searched through the wreckage for the injured. At least 13 people are known to have died. Carriages are crushed, one on top of another. One lies metres away appears partially Ling, The railway industry is tonight coming to terms with yet another disaster. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I'm Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life but today... I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. In a bit of a departure from normal, before we get any further into the episode, I just want to say something. Quite often, when I write these scripts, I can pull the information from reports and you know tell the story of the train. It's very factual and detailed, and it means I can bring you that detail and physical and technical explanations of what happened, but sometimes it's a little thin on the human aspect. Often there is some additional info that I can gather from contemporary news articles if they're available and free of bias and things like that, but there is a limit to that. This time round, however, I have had access to another brilliant source and I want to straight away go in and give it the credit that it's due because it has been so very helpful to tell this story and the stories of the people involved and give them the justice that they deserve. Lockington Crash at the Crossing is a 2014 book by Richard M. Jones. It tells the story of this accident, including some incredible levels of detail about the people who were involved and well, how their lives were turned upside down. I read it before and during writing the script a couple of times, and if you do have some time to spare, I really would recommend a little look yourself. In the world of digital delivery and so on, it's available on Amazon, both as a paperback and a Kindle. And to be honest with you, for the, for the amount of book you get, that price is ridiculously reasonable. If you do want to learn more about Lockington after you've listened to this episode, that is where I'm going to point you. In the meantime, let's start to tell the stories and get into the episode proper. We will start this episode, as we do every time, by, well looking at what the world looked like at the time of the accident, and it was 1986. In January, an institution of British broadcasting was born. The 12th saw the first ever episode of the Roy Walker-fronted catchphrase hit the screens on ITV, closely followed by everybody who knows everybody in the pub saying, say what you see. Shortly afterwards... The announcement was finally made officially that the Channel Tunnel would be built and Britain and the continent would receive a rail link which would allow direct trains between London and Paris. April saw the opening of the underground station at Heathrow's Terminal 4 and the first stage of the Metro Centre in Tyneside was opened. Over the course of the year the rest of the complex would open, making it the largest indoor shopping centre in Europe at the time. In September, we said goodbye to all levels, with GCSEs coming in to replace them, and the first ever episode of Casualty dropped onto our screens. 35 years later, it's still there to watch, although 
I think the cast has probably rotated around a little since then. November saw the appointment of Alex Ferguson as the manager of Manchester United, a position which he held till 2013. The month also played host to a helicopter crash in the Shetlands which claimed the lives of 45 oil workers. As it always seems to be when we do this rundown, it was a busy year, but we are going to focus specifically on the summer, July 26th. So now that I hope you've managed to get your head firmly into the 80s, we'll move forwards into the story. The east coast of the UK is home to many towns and cities essential to the economy and the identity of our country. Some of them are incredibly well-known industrious cities such as Hull, historic home to fishing fleets and extensive docks, and others such as Scarborough are eponymous resort towns where people flock in their hundreds of thousands over the weekends and summer seasons. There are others that are slightly less well-known or a mix of the two, Towns such as Bridlington. Around halfway between Scarborough and Hull, Bridlington is an East Yorkshire icon. Nicknamed the lobster capital of Europe, the port sees 300 tonnes of the creatures landed each year, but the other main trade is tourism. At the same time as the other seaside resorts were growing, Bridlington, or Brid, began to build hotels and resorts to cater for the landlocked West Yorkshire workers in need of rest and recuperation in the sea air. In order for these visitors to make their way to the coast, the town was served by a good-sized railway station. At 9.30 on Saturday the 26th of July, two Foxtrot 21 sat in the platforms at the station. A four-car diesel multiple unit, it was formed of a Class 105 and a Class 114, both of them first-generation DMUs. The train was booked to run southbound towards the city of Hull, passing through various East Yorkshire villages and towns such as Driffield and Beverley on the route southbound. Passengers started to make their way to the train, headed out for, well, various weekend plans. Some had spent the week holidaying in the resort town, such as Elsie and Herbert Masters. They had enjoyed their time at the coast, and now were travelling home with their daughter and son-in-law, Christine and Peter Quinn. Joining them were sisters Joan and Lorna Wilson, off to visit the market town of Beverly for the day, and, while well, a whole host of others with their various missions. This was a normal train, on a normal day, loaded with normal people. This service had started at Bridlington today, so this was the point that train crew joined the service. Guard Peter Sturdy, based out of Hull, was one half of the team, and at the leading cab of the train was his counterpart, Harry Brown. Brown would be responsible for guiding this train down through the countryside on this sunny, clear morning, all the way through to Hull Paragon Station. At 9.33, Sturdy gave the signal and Harry put the power in, the train beginning its perfectly normal journey headed out of Bridlington and into the surrounding, beautiful countryside and the Yorkshire coastline. We have covered mostly main lines before on signals, and it's clear that these are the High-speed routes with many, many trains passing over them, both passenger and freight. And The key arterial routes around the country form the core of our network, but much like the arteries in the body, they can't do the job on their own. They need the support of the smaller blood vessels, 
taking the blood out and away from the arteries into the rest of the body. The railway is exactly the same. Each main line branches out into smaller, quieter routes which directly serve the smaller communities around the country. Lines such as the Yorkshire Coast Line, well, the ones that branch out are known as, it's fairly unsurprising, you'll get no points for it, branch lines. As the line leaves Bridlington, it follows a generally southwestern direction until it reaches the smaller market town of Driffield. This is a town which nowadays provides a relatively large number of commuters into the city of Hull, and in 1986, the passenger numbers were still high. On a weekend, it wasn't uncommon to find people headed into the city to Hull or into Beverly to visit shops and businesses. On the 26th, this was no different. One young man, 16-year-old Wayne Telling, was stood waiting with his friend Darren White. The friends of many years were off to spend his hard-earned cash in the city of Hull. Telling had earned a nice little purse working for a part-time job at a local farm, so he decided to turn some of that money into a reward for himself. Also boarding the train at Driffield, another 16-year-old Greg Addison. He and his friend Jason Schofield were headed into the city, going to return a pair of tennis shorts and pick up a motorcycle helmet. Driffield wasn't just a town of teenagers with pocket money though, and 23-year-old Annette Stork was headed into the city with her fiancé, and one-year-old son to spend the young man's birthday money. With the passengers on board, the service departed, and continued down the branch towards Hull. Its next stop, the village of Hutton Cranswick, where it arrived about 5 to 10 in the morning. Like most stations at this time, there was a signal box at Hutton, and when the train drew into the platform, the signaller, Chas Walker, came down to say hello to Brown. They exchanged pleasantries and tales of grandchildren. When the time came, the train departed and Walker sent the signal to the next box to inform them that the hull-bound service was on its way towards Beverley. Around the same time, he received bells back from Beverley to tell him that the service to Bridlington from Hull was on its way up as well. With the stations only ten minutes apart, it would be a matter of minutes until they passed each other. Well, waving to each other as drivers do. Two Foxtrot 2-1 increased its speed to 60 miles an hour, and it continued on through the morning sun. 64 passengers and crew on board. Three miles south of the station at Hutton Cranswick was Lockington Level Crossing. Now, I'm confident that everyone listening has probably come across a level crossing before, but just in case, I will go back to what I've done in the past and do a little bit of a 101. It has been a while since the last one. Level crossings are where a road and a railway line intersect, but for various reasons, this isn't done by grade separation, such as a bridge or a tunnel, but the two physically share the same space or cross at the same level, hence the name. Now this might be due to the fact there's limited space, nearby buildings or structures that prevent building these larger separated crossings, but more often than not, cost is a significant factor. To to build up the earthworks and structures around a bridge or a tunnel costs money. Inevitably, if you have well a busy railway line with trains every few minutes, it probably isn't feasible to hold up traffic for three or four minutes out of every five, so you would, in that situation, build the bridge or tunnel. Conversely, if you've got a main trunk road, such as an A road or even a motorway, 
and align with a very limited service, you would still build the bridge. Because even if the traffic's only stopped for a few minutes every hour, well, can you imagine the knock-on that would have on, say, the M25? Not to mention the danger of putting traffic lights unexpectedly on a road with 60 or 70 mile an hour speed limits. There is a great video on YouTube taken outside of Higashi Yodogawa, Higashi Yodogawa Station in Japan. Not a native speaker, understandably. Um, during the morning rush hour, that crossing, which has seven tracks, by the way, can be closed for up to 40 minutes at a time. It is fascinating to watch, but this is obviously a minor route through the area, and it's probably only been maintained as a a right-of-way or whatever the Japanese equivalent is. If that was the main route through the city centre, you'd have to build the bridge. You'd have to build a tunnel. The cost is justifiable in that location and that situation. But if you take that situation out of a city centre and away from a main line, the maths changes. Between the market towns of Driffield and Beverly, there are 10 miles of railway track. Within those 10 miles, the track is intersected by a crossing of some type 17 times. That's nearly twice a mile. Can you imagine the cost of building a bridge for each of them and then multiplying that idea out across the country? Even the industrious Victorians charging out across the countryside and laying down the permanent way would probably have thought twice about that. And that is why we are left with crossings. They can be split into some categories, with different levels of protection. In fact, if you open up the Wikipedia article, it's going to tell you that there are 17 different types of crossings in the UK, but I'm really not going to get into that much detail. Just a basic rundown of the key players. The simplest form is a user-worked crossing, a UWC. These are a basic footpath crossing, a crossing with gates and instructional signage, or a crossing with a telephone to the nearest signal box. In order to cross safely... Users read the instructions and follow them. What the instructions are will probably vary based on some factors and the, the line speed, the number of trains that pass, but they all rely on people following those instructions to do so safely. Quite often, these are found on routes between farmland or remote, lesser-used areas. Of the 17 crossings between Beverly and Driffield, five of them were user-worked crossings, so gates between farmers' fields. The next variant that we look at would be the MCB crossing, or the one with manually controlled barriers. This is what people think of as a traditional level crossing. An MCB is controlled by an adjacent signal box, where a competent man can view the road closure, determine that the crossing is clear before he releases the protecting signals. Normally, an MCB crossing has either two full-width road barriers or four half-width ones, but they fully close the road. This type of crossing is often provided with standard road lights and alarms. The, uh, that, you know, well, you see what I mean? It's a traditional level crossing. The provision of lights and alarms allows drivers to be notified from a distance away from the crossing that the train is coming and stops safely in time, while the barriers provide a physical, well, barrier to the track. We do know, however, that local signal boxes are being phased out in favour of centralised rail operating centres. So manually controlled barrier crossings can also be monitored through CCTV or even radar obstacle detectors, removing the need for, well, a local signalman. But cost is still a consideration. 
and when we move out of busier areas and faster lines, there are other options available. Quite often, this is the AHBC, the Automatic Half Barrier Crossing. Where there are only two lines to cross and the speed's less than 100 mile an hour, that's what's installed. They have two half barriers that only close the entrance lanes to the crossing, standard lights and alarms. And at the uh, maximum rail line speed, the crossing time is typically around about 27 seconds from the first amber light to the train arriving at the crossing. They're designed for use on roads with infrequent traffic. And the Wikipedia article had 17, and so you understand that there are a load of other variants with some slightly different acronyms that mean various different things, but I will not get bogged down with them now. What we do need to talk about, though, is Lockington Level Crossing. Until its modernisation in 1985, Lockington had been controlled by lifting barriers. These were manually controlled and managed from the adjacent signal box. With a signaller in place, the crossing was controlled by signals at either side which would not be cleared until the line was clear and the gates were closed. Absolutely ideal, but required a member of staff at the crossing to control it. When modernisation took place, Lockington Level Crossing was changed from a manually controlled to what is known as an AOCR. It's a different type of crossing to the ones we've already mentioned because the acronym stands for Automatic Open Crossing, remote controlled. They are very similar to the automatic half barrier ones. They don't interlock with protecting signals, but they do have lights and alarms which are automatically triggered when the train is a set distance away. The key difference, and the one that's of real relevance to our story, is the O. Open. AOCR crossings don't have any barriers. They rely on lights and alarms to warn of the oncoming train, but they lack the physical barriers. When Lockington was modified, this is what was put in place. Knowing this allows us to understand what happened next in 1986. As 2 Foxtrot 2-1 left Hutton Cranswick and continued southbound, it occupied a specific track circuit and triggered a treadle. The setup of the crossing meant that this is what commenced the sequence at the automatic lights. An electronic alarm started and a yellow light showed on the crossing lights. Three seconds later, the red light started to show. These are arranged side by side and flash alternately, known as wigwag lights. The automatic crossing was giving its warning to road users to stop and wait. A train is on its way. Around 35 seconds after activating the sequence, two Foxtrot 2-1 approached the crossing at a speed of around 60 miles an hour. Meters away from the crossing, a flash of blue shot out from the right-hand side. A van had entered from what seemed like nowhere. There was no time, no advance warning, and a reaction was impossible. The left-hand buffer of the train struck the near side of the van behind the passenger seat, ripping it into five pieces. The left-hand leading wheel of the train ended up trying to run up and over the van's axle, and both the leading wheels of the train were derailed to the left as they departed from the crossing. Directly after the crossing was a small embankment, and the leading end of the first carriage ran down this. It jackknifed and was turned onto its right-hand side, 
dragged along backwards while the leading end of the second coach was forced over the adjacent line. For those on board, the train's normality had dissipated into chaos in no time at all. Passengers sat in the rearmost carriage told of how they heard an almighty bang, felt a shuddering, and how they could see the train snaking along the track ahead of them as the derailment took place. The guard, Peter Sturdy, who was sat in the cab of the third carriage, was instantly aware that things had gone wrong. I mean, his experience will have meant that he knew what felt normal, and this did not. That feeling was reinforced by the story that the brake gauges in front of him told. Something had either gone wrong, or the driver had stuck the emergency in. Those in the second carriage were thrown from their seats to the floor of the train as the collision took place. But, as Richard Jones writes in his book, If the people in cars 2, 3 and 4 were scared then the occupants of the first carriage were in hell itself. As the leading carriage slid along the dirt track which was next to the track, the windows shattered. Gravel and stones were thrown into the cabin and cuts, grazes and other injuries were sustained by the occupants. This was alongside some much more catastrophic results. Seconds and only seconds had elapsed between the initial collision and everything coming to a stand. A cloud of dust rose into the air and everything just stopped. There were a few houses located directly next to the crossing at Lockington and they instantly knew something was up. The emergency services were called almost immediately. Humberside Police was contacted with officers from Beverly arriving around 10 minutes after the accident took place. Followed minutes later by both fire and rescue and ambulance services. The scene at Lockington was horrific, but it could have been so much worse. As Chaz Walker signalled Beverly to tell him that Foxtrot 21 was on its way, he received bells from Beverly, telling him that another train was headed towards him. Sturdy knew the timetable, and he knew that this was around the point where the two trains would pass. As soon as he realised his train was off the line, and especially that the second carriage was blocking both lines, he started to run towards the track, towards Beverly. When he saw the train coming, he waved his arms frantically to get it stopped. The driver of the northbound train had seen the dust and had already started the process of bringing his train to a stand. So it passed sturdy, braking heavily and came to a halt before colliding with the wreckage. At least least a second tragedy had been averted, but it didn't decrease from what had already taken place. Once rescue and recovery work had been completed, the toll of a sunny Saturday morning could be counted. Eight of the passengers on the train had not survived the accident. Gregory Addison, the 16-year-old who had been headed to buy a motorcycle helmet, had been thrown from the first carriage and trapped beneath it, where he succumbed to his injuries. A 15-year-old, Helen Lodge, also lost her life in the lead carriage. These two were joined by Elsie and Herbert Masters, who were returning from the family holiday week at the coast, and were also added to the tally, alongside their daughter Christine Quinn. 16-year-old Wayne Telling, who had just wanted to reap the benefits of his part-time job, didn't survive, nor did 73-year-old Joan Wilson. People at different ends of life, but dealt an equally grim hand on this morning. The last passenger to be added to this awful list was new mother Annette Stork 
who had left the house on this day just to buy presents for her son. This is an awful list which fills a heart with sadness. Of the 64 people on board the train, these eight paid the ultimate price and it's it's hard to write it down. I imagine you're listening to it with a heavy heart too. The worst part is I can't even stop there because the eight passengers were joined by one other person. The van which caused the derailment had been driven by a 42-year-old called Malcolm Ashley. He survived the accident with severe injuries, but somehow he survived. He hadn't been alone in the van, though. He'd had a passenger, somebody with him, sat there in the front who hadn't survived the collision. The ninth victim at Lockington, his 11-year-old foster son, Wayne Harmon. tragic loss of life and obvious failings of the method of work at the crossing at Lockington meant that it was essential for a full and detailed investigation. Her Majesty's Rail Inspectorate arrived at the scene to start the process in earnest. At the time of the accident, there were around 10,000 crossings across the country of various designs, so if there were any, any inherent design flaws, it was important, well it was crucial to find out what they were. As ever, there was a sequence of questions that the investigators needed to answer. First, the AOCR crossing at Lockington was supposed to give a visual and audible warning to stop traffic for a train to pass. Had this taken place as designed, or had something failed, and was that what had caused Malcolm Ashley to drive out into the crossing unaware of the dangerous situation that he was entering? Secondly, if the crossing had been functioning correctly, what led to the van being there in the first place? Why hadn't the van obeyed the signals? And thirdly, why did the collision with a relatively light vehicle lead to such a devastating accident? They may have found out that it had been unavoidable, but it was certainly worth gaining an understanding of the mechanics involved. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Investigations into the first question started instantly. 
indirectly, by those who approached the crossing straight after the accident. We know that when a train was approaching the crossing, vehicles on the road should have seen the flashing red wigwag lights, a clear visual cue that the train was on the way. This should have been accompanied by a loud electronic warning siren, known as a yord alarm. That is a yodel alarm, not a horrific Star Wars reference. The alternating tones clearly recognisable to anyone who has come across a level crossing before. So, what did those first on the scene find on arrival? From the opposite side of the railway to where Ashley had come, two vehicles had been approaching the crossing at the time of the accident. One had been a haulier, driving a three-axle rigid vehicle which had a high cab. He left the nearby farm shortly before 10 to return to the main road which meant he had to cross over the crossing. On approaching it, he noticed the red lights flashing on and off more than a mile away. He could see them because the countryside around here is very flat and the cab of his vehicle was high up. Seeing the lights, he naturally looked either side of the crossing for the train, which he managed to locate, seeing it coming from his right, from Bridlington. He watched it as it continued along the road, behind some trees and over the crossing. He continued on towards the crossing, noticing a cloud of dust which he thought was unusual, but it was not until he drew up at the crossing with the lights still flashing and the old alarm sounding that he realised there had been a serious derailment. He had not seen the lights go out and come on again, and he thought it was only about three to four minutes from the time the train passed over to when he actually reached it. This was at least one person who had seen that the crossing was functioning correctly. And he wasn't the only one. A postman had been driving along the road ahead of the lorry. While he didn't have the same vantage point, he was closer to the crossing as the accident took place. He had noticed the train, which was now on the whole side of the crossing, with what he thought at the time was an engine on fire. What it actually was had been the black ballast being thrown up. He saw the front carriage rear up and fall back on itself, so he immediately accelerated and got to the line as quickly as he could. The red lights on his side were flashing when he got there. Both the lorry driver and postman saw the lights from the direction that Ashley had entered the crossing as well, and on that side the lights were working and the alarm was audible. This account was all backed up by British rail staff as they arrived on the scene. The manager from Hull, responsible for the line, arrived around 40 minutes after the accident. He got there, approaching from the same direction as the incident vehicle had, and everything seemed in order. Signalling telecommunications staff, or S&T as we like to abbreviate to them because it's much less of a mouthful, arrived shortly after and they tested the equipment locally and found nothing wrong with it. It is clear that the signals appeared to be functioning correctly at the point everybody arrived on scene, and it sounded as though the evidence of road users showed that they'd been, well, functioning throughout. It was important, however, to understand whether there was a history of failures. Perhaps the light at the other side where Malcolm Ashley had approached from had malfunctioned temporarily. There is a factor that encourages the possibility that this might have been the place. Malcolm Ashley lived in railway cottages, 150 metres away from the crossing. This section of road and this crossing were incredibly well known by him. In fact, the road that led out of where his home was emerged only 23 metres from the crossing itself. When BR had looked to modernise the crossing, Ashley had been involved in the conversations, and this particular journey 
was more or less a weekly trip for him, every Saturday morning. How could he have got it so wrong? Perhaps the alarm and lights had failed, and he had no warning at all that he was in danger. When investigators started to speak to local residents and British Rail about the possibility as whether or not the crossing had failed, they did find out that there was apparently a history of failures at the crossing. Not a massively long one or a colourful history, but the crossing was only a year or so old in this guise, and there were, apparently, incidents. On the 27th of June, just over a month before the incident, the Beverly Signaler received numerous calls from a number of telephones at the crossing to say that the red lights were flashing for a long time with no train coming. He replied to each call saying that he knew of the failure and that technical staff were on their way to correct it. If they asked, he was only permitted to tell them whether a train was or was not approaching. This was a failure of the system, but what we call a right-side failure. You're probably aware of the concept of a right-side failure, but by a different name. Fail-safe. Right-side failure is when a piece of equipment on the railway fails, but that this failure does not create a dangerous situation. The lights had broken, but these broken lights were still providing a warning to say that a train was coming, even if it wasn't. The opposite of this is a wrong-side failure. In a wrong-side failure, this situation would be left in an unsafe state, so say, for example, the lights didn't light, an alarm didn't sound, despite the fact that a train was bearing down on the crossing. There was an occasion which the signaller could recall when a BR employee on the 13th of May that year had called the box to report that a train had passed over the crossing and he thought the lights had not operated. On that occasion there was no indication on the control panel of any failure, just the comments of that report which were investigated. Other people, local people, also accounted for times that they had seen the lights malfunction. A local butcher said that in the period between December 1985 and the accident, there were six or seven occasions when he had approached the crossing with the lights operating and no train had passed over them before the lights were extinguished. He also told investigators that on the 23rd, he had witnessed a train passing over the crossing with no lights at all. A similar tale was told of another occasion, but this time by a local woman who had crossed with her children in the car shortly before the train itself crossed. These stories are scary and very concerning, but most of the people involved and who gave testimony to this effect failed to report the faults as they perceived them to be are. They only shared this information following the accident, speaking to the police or investigators for, for one reason or another. If the faults had been reported, then records would have been made and would have been available to the inquiry. What was available were the records of the maintenance teams responsible for the equipment. In much the same way as the actual tracks are inspected weekly, and we've covered that before in the podcast, the crossing equipment was as well, and the records showed that these inspections were all carried out. The most recent, three days before the accident, had also taken place on the 23rd, the same day the butcher stated he'd seen the lights fail. However, the equipment, according to the records, had shown no issues during inspection and testing, and the staff were adamant they wouldn't have left the crossing in an unsafe condition. The report into Lockington explained how the contrary opinions were considered as part of the investigation, and these were the conclusions that they reached. 
The several right-side failures before the accident had given local residents a feeling that the equipment was unreliable, but the cause of these failures had been understandable and assignable. The causes of them had been ascertained, and they included passage of agricultural machinery over a crossing, the testing of crossing equipment at another crossing, work on the permanent way, and the failure of an electricity supply nearby. All of these were far from ideal, but they were attributable and explainable. And they were a right-side, safe failure. The report also noted that after the accident, the police received a smaller number of reports of danger-side failures that had occurred before the incident, alleging that trains had passed over the crossing without the red lights flashing, or with the lights only flashing for the short period of time. This is the response to those queries, and it's verbatim from the report because I don't want to mistranslate it to anybody. Where the lights are said to have flashed for a short period, there is no mention of the yellow aspect being seen, and I believe that the report has arisen because the attention of the person making it has only been drawn to the red flashing lights part way through the sequence. Where the report is that lights have not flashed at all, I think the person on the road may not have been in a position from which the lights were visible, or that the lights have in some way been obscured, or as in Mr Wright's case, the person has only been in a position to see the lights correctly, when the train has actually just struck out, which means left the area of the crossing. The analysis and design of the signalling circuits, the result of the use of the recorder, the tests conducted after the accident and the evidence leave me in no doubt that the red traffic signals were flashing as the train approached and were operating correctly at the time of each of the alleged danger side failures. The fact that so few of these failures were reported at the time to British Rails or the police, despite the obvious danger to road users, reinforces this opinion, although I am equally sure that those making the reports honestly described what they saw. This response was fairly categorical. Her Majesty's Rail Inspectorate is not in the business of taking the side of the industry or blindly defending British Rail. You only have to do what I've done and read a few of the reports to say that, especially in this time, they will will lay blame where blame is due. Any decisions and conclusions they reach are always made on the empirical and quantifiable evidence of the found facts. The answer to the question was yes, the lights had worked correctly. But this clearly left question two and made it very, very important. If the crossing had worked correctly, why did Malcolm Ashley drive out into the path of a passenger train? A really very simple way to answer both the first and second questions would be to ask Mr Ashley following his recovery. It's not often you get a witness that's been this involved in a tragedy that's alive afterwards. But this wasn't an option. After his discharge from hospital for the various severe injuries he'd received, it became clear he had no recognition of the accident at all. He wasn't able to answer any of the questions and he wasn't even really interviewed as part of the inquiry. In lieu of the definitive answer from the man himself, the inquiry needed to rely on the other evidence that they could find. It was clear that the van hadn't broken down on the crossing and become stranded because it had been seen to pull out by witnesses into the crossing. However, 
If you like your empirical and physical evidence, as I do, the remains of the car showed that it had been in gear at the time of the crash. So the overwhelming likelihood is that it was moving, as supported by witnesses. The inquiry and the investigators considered four possibilities as to why Mr Ashley drove out onto the crossing. First one, Ashley might have seen the lights flashing, but concluded that he could cross before the train arrived. Considering his experience and his reputation, plus the fact his child was in the car, this seems unlikely. Bear in mind, Ashley will have known the short time frame that that warning provides. Around 24 seconds of red lights, that's all you get. So he wouldn't be racing the train. Which leads us to the second option. Because he was in some way preoccupied. He did not look for the lights, but for the barriers that up until December the year before had been lowered to close the crossing. Again, it was deemed unlikely, because we know he'd been involved in the discussions about modernising and changing the crossing, and he did this journey every week, let alone lived right next door to the crossing. So, again, that was deemed unlikely. Which left two possible solutions to the question, why? Because there was no other traffic, and he was able to drive straight out into the lane and over the crossing, did he potentially only give the lights a cursory glance which wasn't sufficient because the sun was behind them? It was only 23 metres between the exit to the lane and the crossing, so not a great deal of time to reassess the lights if proper attention wasn't initially paid to them. And that one was deemed to be a possible reason. But the most likely reason, as ascertained by the investigators, was that in the few seconds available between approaching the lane from his house and reaching the stop sign, Mr. Rashley was in some way distracted, and did not look at the road traffic light signals, did not notice the alarm. He had both his foster, dog, foster son and his dog in the car, very ample possible sources of distraction. In addition, as he pulled out, he needed to look right into the lane for traffic and carry out the manoeuvre to turn left. A lot going on in a very short time frame. The thing Malcolm should have focused on most, the signals at the crossing, must have escaped his attention. With fatal consequences. The third question, the physical mechanics of how the collision with the car had led to the crash being quite so catastrophic, was now looked into. The investigators were able to look at the damage and reconstruct the sequence of the actual derailment. They used the wreckage, marks to the wreckage, they used marks to the road surface, the track and other pieces of equipment and vehicles that were involved. And this was the sequence as ascertained by the gathering of the evidence. Firstly, the near side buffer entered the side of the van, just to the rear of the cab. Then a considerable impact occurred as the near side corner of the train struck the van at the rear end of the driving compartment, cleaving through that side of the van. This was shown by the damage to the passenger side and the passenger seat. Almost simultaneously, the left hand leading lifeguard snapped the rear near side wheel off the axle and the train wheel immediately behind it began to compress the flooring of the van against the axle, wearing a groove in the metal over the axle. There were rips in the flooring beyond this groove, which corresponded with the position of the lifeguard in relation to the train wheel. 
this would account for the flooring and the axle not being completely overridden because the lifeguard embedding itself in the flooring held the debris away from the train wheel. And I realise I've said lifeguard a few times though, not that really explained it. In this context, a lifeguard is a metal bracket. It's designed to deflect an obstacle out of the path of a train, although they only work to a degree. The force of the collision, combined with the compression of the floor and the axle of the van, had lifted the train's wheels from the tracks. Those wheels then started to derail to the left towards the cess. The reason this accident was so severe came down to the unfortunate placement of some fairly minor earthworks. As the line leaves the crossing I mentioned earlier, it rides along the top of a slight embankment. It's only a metre or two tall. I've stood on the dirt track next to it. And when I'm stood there, and I'm not a tall man, the tracks are at my eye line. It's not by any stretch of the imagination a large embankment, but it is there nonetheless. If the line had been level with the ground, or even better in a cutting, the lead vehicle, as it derailed, might well have stabilised and managed to sit upright, saving people from what did happen. As the lead wheels derailed to the left, they slid down the embankment and the cab dug into the soft ground at the bottom and pivoted around it. This opened the door to the violent roll to the right and made holes in the ground out of the windows. It was this violent throwing around of carriages which turned this derailment into a disaster. Each accident report includes a section comprising recommendations to the industry to prevent reoccurrences of the disaster, and this one was no different. The report noted three specific points around the automatic open crossing which was utilised at Lockington. Firstly, under certain circumstances some motorists either do not notice the red traffic lights, or if they do see them, do not comprehend or understand the message. This is not described as an act of willful disobedience, but as the fact that the message given by the signals is just inadequate for some people. Some motorists, after seeing the red lights flashing, act in the most irresponsible manner at crossings. This results from stupidity, impatience, or a lack of appreciation of hazards. What I said earlier on about apportioning blame when blame is due, they don't really pull their punches in these reports, especially not in the 80s. And the third point was that BR have fallen short of what they should do to record and explain unusual occurrences, to deal with safe side failures and to encourage reports of such incidents. The most important recommendation to come out of this report was that the AOCRs in this area should be turned into automatic half-barrier crossings with a physical barrier to enhance both the visual and physical protection of the line. A wholesale safety review of the automatic open crossing was also undertaken following the accident leading to a set of criteria being recommended the stott report named for its author concluded that no more aocrs should be built and that those already in existence should be changed to either ahbs automatic half barriers or aocls automatic open crossings but ones that were locally monitored not uncontrolled out in the sticks as an aside, in 2009, a fatal collision at an AOCL in Hulkirk 
led to recommendations to install barriers at a large number of them as well. Unsurprisingly, Lockington Level Crossing was one of many up and down the country which didn't make the grade, and it was converted to an automatic half-barrier version, which it still is today. The legacy of the crash didn't actually wait for the publication of the report, however. Days after the incident, British Rail themselves suspended the installation of new unmanned automatic crossings. Following the recommendations of the Stott Report, and, to be frank, the passage of time, only one AOCR remains in the country. And if you want to find it, it's a bit of a journey for most of us, because it's at Rosari in Moray, Scotland. A number of other recommendations were levelled in the report, and these included that British Rail should undertake a national campaign of advertising, stressing the significance of the road signs, the requirement to stop when the lights show, and the need to report any difficulties. This was intended to educate the great British public on the safe use of crossings in general, and was recommended alongside an improvement in the way that crossings were represented pictorially in the Highway Code, and I quote, that was to improve the educational value of the document. It is interesting to note that Professor Stott, the author of the report into AOCRs, was of the opinion that a special programme of public education is not to be expected to be effective in improving the safety performance of crossings. Stott had significant road safety experience, and you can't help but feel that he had a point. The rise of speed cameras and tickets is well known, yet people drive faster than the limit. We still get accidents at traffic lights, despite the widespread knowledge that red means stop. And level crossings? Well, you only need to take a cursory scroll through Network Rail's Twitter feed to see that some, and I stress some, people still can't be trusted to use them appropriately. Even in the last couple of weeks, we've seen videos of Two ladies out for a walk, taking photographs of each other lying on a user-worked footpath crossing. We've seen photographs of someone who'd put a video on the social media app TikTok of them on an open user-worked crossing, taking photographs of a car there. Some people can't be trusted to use them properly. It's, it's frustrating. And you, like I said, you can't help but feel that maybe Stott knew that that was always going to be the case. For that small minority of road users, you can put up all the signage in the world, but there might as well be nothing there. Even just six months after the accident, there was a further occurrence on the Yorkshire coastline. On the 27th of June 1987, a train failed after colliding with a snowdrift. But where it was meant that the Lockington level crossing and another were both showing as if a train was approaching for two hours, with the lights and the alarm. The signaller received a number of calls on the crossing phones from people who were telling him that those lights were broken, which he admittedly knew, but people were ringing him saying the lights are going, the lights are broken. Nobody requested permission from him to cross, or asked, is there a train coming, is it safe to cross? Yet investigators were informed that a number of people had done so, one of them was involved in a near miss with a locomotive that had been sent to assist the failed train. While I struggle with the concept of people doing this, especially in Lockington, so fresh, with the collective mind of the area being so aware of the accident that had recently taken place here, it became clear that the advice given by signalers probably needed reviewing as well. 
Amended instructions for signalmen in a monitoring signal box were drawn up and were issued shortly after the report was published. Funnily enough, this emphasised the need for road users to be told to stop at the red flashing lights and not to cross if they continue to flash. The last piece of the puzzle to drop into place was the issue of blame, and whether or not there were to be any charges levied against a guilty party, probably for want of a better phrase. Despite the fact that Ashley received the full blame as the outcome of the report, Humberside Police made the decision not to prosecute him on any charge, and the matter went to coroner's court. Over a few days, evidence was given by local residents, who again claimed failings at the crossing, and those at British Rail who had been involved in the running of the service and the line. Alongside them, evidence was given by the emergency services, who shared their experiences of responding on the morning of the accident. After everything had been read and considered, the coroner decided that neither British Rail nor Malcolm Ashley were in any position to carry the blame, and reached a verdict of nine counts of death by misadventure. Echoing the opinion of many, the coroner gave his opinion that had the barriers still remained, the accident would most likely never have taken place. With most episodes, you will know that I like to close by discussing the memorial that's been left for people to remember and to pay their respects by. Sometimes these are erected shortly afterwards, take the form of plaques or gardens or sculptures. And sometimes they are conspicuous in their absence, and Lockington was one of those times. I say was. At the start of this episode, I mentioned the book Lockington Crash at the Crossing by Richard Jones. I'll recommend it again as not only does he tell the tale of the accident far more eloquently than I, he includes a section at the end of the book where he recounts the lasting effect on the victims and those who were involved in the accident. I couldn't even begin to do that information justice without tagging another hour on the end of this episode, so I really do think it's worth a read. But the bit I want to focus on is the epilogue. In 2009, when he started work on the book, he became aware that there was no memorial to the accident and he started working with the Lockington support group to set about getting one arranged. After a bit of a saga, back and forth with local churches and dioceses and various other bodies, there was success. 24 years after the accident, in July 2010, a permanent memorial to the disaster was unveiled in the Memorial Garden at Driffield. Paid for out of public donations, the memorial is a grey stone dedicated to the memory of the nine lives lost, and recognising the bravery of the emergency services. The memorialisation of this accident, even at this late stage, brought a sense of closure and a place of remembrance to those whose lives had been significantly altered by the events of July 1986. As part of my research into this, I visited Lockington and the crossing there. I live close enough that it was reasonable enough to do so. I've watched as the lights and alarms sound and I've seen how short 30 seconds can seem in those circumstances. I also walked along the dirt track to the east of the line where the leading carriage ended up and I spent a bit of time thinking on the events that took place there. This is normally a busy commuter line which swells to be even busier over the summer months. Hundreds of people an hour sometimes sweep over the crossing and past the field, barely even noticing any change in the level, beautiful East Yorkshire countryside. 
I can't help but wonder how many even know what happened to people just like them 35 years ago. Thank you once again for tuning in to episode 15. Please like, share, review, come interact with me on social media, Twitter, Facebook, just search for Signals to Danger or Daniel Fox Rail. If you do want to support the podcast, please get yourself over to the website signalstodanger.com and look at either the support or the shop pages. You'll also find episode notes, a transcript and episode sources there, as well as a link to Richard Jones's book, Lockington Crash at the Crossing. Until next episode... Travel safe. Being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.